Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Phil and Ted's guest is comedian, survivor, and pop star dad, Jamie Alcroft. And now, your Sexy Boomer hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. And I'm Philip George Proctor. But for the sake of this show, uh, you can just call me Phil. And today we have with us in our improvised studio uh, a dear friend of mine, Jamie Alcroft, uh, who has had and is having the most remarkable life uh, and because he's had a second chance at life. Wonderful to be here. It's great to be back. I have had a change of heart. Uh, yes. But I had a change of heart about four years ago. That's right. Yeah. Literally. Your old ticker gave out. That's right. I remember you could hardly make it up the stairs to your place, and that was only three stairs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, so you had a heart and a liver transplant. Heart and a liver. I have a 46-year-old heart and a 72-year-old body. Wow. I, I don't know whether I have a midlife crisis or get a reverse mortgage. I'm so conflicted. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. What a life. But you, you've also dedicated uh, some of your professional life now to encouraging people to to be donors. I do. I'm an international ambassador for One Legacy, and One Legacy is the organization. People with one leg? No, no, it's not that kind of legacy, oh, okay. Mr. Punster. It's, um, it, it's the organization that actually matches the donors with the recipients. Wow. So uh, they found me a heart from a motorcycle accident in Northern California, a 46-year-old guy, um, and it was really fortunate because sometimes people wait for like 18 months. Well, you, mean, you waited. How long did you wait? I was only on the list for a month. I got really lucky. Wow. They Boy, found the you. right size heart, the right blood type. But, you know, uh, people in America don't fill out their donor cards as much as they could yep. or or would or should. Or it, It's only 52%, I think it is now, that wow. fill out the donor cards. And 22 people a day die because, because the organs they need aren't available. So, uh, you know, I could have died because well, yes. this is a great way to start off a show. Tell it is, it is. You survived, yeah. by God. I did survive. You I did. did. And thanks to my donor. Right. Anyone listening to this, I encourage you to fill out your donor card because, you know, people want to leave a legacy. They want to be remembered in life. What greater way? I remember my guy every day. I might know, not know his name, but his heart is beating in my chest and enabling me to play with my granddaughter, yeah. to go make my jewelry or make my abstracts or or be on this show and uh, I, I just be here. Hell, I'm back. Yeah. I'm back with a vengeance, man. The heart transplant is now so successful. Yeah, of course, there's nothing about it that's routine. But the fact that you're here and you're living a normal life. It is really the finest uh, form of uh, recycling. <laughs> you know, we recycle cans and bottles and stuff. And the most recyclable thing in the world is the human body because we can give sight to the blind. We can recycle our eyes. Yep. We give uh, tendons, ligaments, and people say, well, I'm too old to be a donor. I nobody wants this crap anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not true no. because old skin stretches better on burn victims. Oh. How's that? It, it, it creates it's less pain for the burn victim because the skin is not snapping back. The psychological implications of having a heart transplant 
are pretty intense. It was. You were at a certain point where it was so critical that you had to be ready, literally physically ready at the hospital right. for the eventuality, hope, that a heart would come in. That's why they were holding me in the hospital. And that's why you were telling friends who were coming to visit you to like, don't buckle the seatbelt. <laughs> and don't wear a helmet. Yeah. <laughs> and drive as fast as you can. <laughs> I was creating donor, you know, in my own way. A little sidetrack here. Uh, Jamie wrote a book called The Tin Man Diaries while he was waiting for his heart transplant. That's right. So he could tell the story of his life <laughs> in, case, in case it was over. I'm dying. I, I got to get a, at least a good 20 minutes out of this. You, you're going crazy yourself. Somebody's got to die for me to live. I got to, I gotta, you know. You sound like everybody on an HMO plan. <laughs> oh, and that was another thing. Medicare paid for everything. Yeah, two million dollars. Well, actually, that's not true because I did get a bill for thirty-seven fifty. Oh, from, that's outrageous! From, see, oh, I'm I'm suing them. This is really an example of how great U.S. medicine can be. Yes, it is. Because you had two teams. No pun intended, because this is Phil's department, but this is cutting edge stuff. <laughs> yeah, it really is. How did this affect you? Obviously, the fear of it all, but the the existential threat of a very good chance of dying. There's no fear. No fear. No fear. I gotta tell you, I I was at home and I would lay down and I would run out of breath. And I have to stand up to catch my breath. And I'd lay down again and I'd run out of breath. So for three or four nights, I slept in a chair. My feet started to swell and other extremities started to swell. Uh, not in a good way. And um, <laughs> think of a grapefruit and a tennis ball. That's all I'm going to say. And, uh, and it was all water retention because my heart was not pumping. Though, you know, it was just wasn't doing it. So I went to the doctor and he, uh, they ran a test on me. And he said, well, Mr. Elcroft, I don't like your number. I said, my number? He said, yes, it's down to 7%. Wow. You are going to need a new heart. And he was from Alabama, but he, <laughs> he was talking like this. It really kind of threw me a little bit because I never heard him do an Indian impression before. <laughs> but when he said that to me, I felt all of the control drain out of my body. It was like it was like a puddle on the floor of all the control that I'd ever had in my life. And I just surrendered. I surrendered to the transplant. I surrendered to death. I surrendered to the hospitalization. Whatever you're going to do, to the extent that I didn't want um, the nurses going, okay, you know, when they gave me a shot, here we go now, ready, here we go. You know, okay, one, two, three, okay, get ready. You know, none of that. And they knew when they came in my room. Just do it. Just stab me. Because the only thing I had left in my life was surprise. <laughs> <laughs> that probably took a lot of stress off of you and probably was healthier, uh, kept you going. It had to be healthier. How did your family, Oh, how did it affect your family? Did it bring it together? You know, that's just a whole other dimension to my, this. My family has really been together all along. I have a wonderful family. And they were tremendously supportive, but they were petrified. Yeah. Um, my daughter, Haley Kiyoko, has written a screenplay about the family's experience. Hmm. When the pandemic began, she took my book, The Tin Man Diaries, available on Amazon, mm -hmm. and she read it. And as she went through it, she chronicled what the family was going through. And she's written oh. a screenplay about it called Dad. 
and they're currently looking for a lead. I haven't read the script, so I, I, I don't know what the family's situation was through it, other than what they've told me, you know. I was blissfully unaware what my family was going through, I guess, mm. because I was being kept alive in a hospital bed sure. with 11 IV bags. And I'm laying there, wow. and Phil comes in to see me. He says, how are you doing? I said, well, okay, I'm here. I said, how are you doing? He said, I got this tennis elbow. It's just killing me. That's right. I did. <laughs> Listen, I'm just glad it wasn't called dead. <laughs> they could have added an E. <laughs> Any reason why you haven't read the script? Uh, she hasn't let me. Ah. You know, that's okay. It's not. You know, I haven't said, let me read the script. No, Dad. We've never had that conversation. It's unspoken. Huh. I just know that I really don't have a right to read her script unless she offers it to me. Yes. And you have an amazing family. Yes. Let me start with my wife, Sarah. Sarah Kawahara is uh, a ice skating choreographer. And uh, we met because Peggy Fleming saw Mac and I perform at the Comedy Store <laughs> in 1981. But I mean, we were larval comics. Yeah. We had only been together six months when we came to L.A. And we didn't know what happens with the people. It's a showcase of some sort. Yeah. Well, Peggy Fleming called uh, the comedy store, found out we were with William Morris and called William Morris. And then my agent called me, Jeff, which is the best agent ever lived. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's still living. And he called, James, James, guess what? Peggy Fleming saw you last night. She wants you to do her ice show. She wants me to do it. Yeah, she's doing a nice show in Lake Tahoe. We were that funny, they want to ice us. <laughs> and and so we performed for three months at, at Harris Lake Tahoe with Peggy Fleming and uh, wow. skied every day and did comedy every night. And that Peggy left the show. Yeah. And the only person who could skate her role was the one who taught it to her. So Sarah, Sarah Kawahara, who had choreographed for Peggy Fleming uh, in, in Ice Capades. Oh, that's how you... She started skating. And I'd stand in the wings every night. I'll bet. And saw this, see this beautiful Asian princess out yeah, there skating yeah. so beautifully. And, yeah. and Sarah has moves that no other skater in the world. I mean, people will do something on the ice and somebody will say, oh, well, that was very Kawahara. Did she make a move on you or did you make a move on her? I made a move on her. I asked her out for mushrooms. Uh, not the magic ones, but that that might have been an idea because I'm a fun guy. That's why. Oh, <laughs> Speaking of magic mushrooms, the next Firestone Theater album that's going to be released is our, our our live magic mushroom shows that we did for Radio Free Oz. Oh, wow. Uh, we have one out now, by the way, if anybody's interested. Our latest album is called Back from the Shadows. Yes. And it is a remastering of our live performances. It's a two record. Double record double set. Record. Downloadable. So you can open it up and roll joints in it. Yeah, great. <laughs> I love those double records. And the album that's out now also has an 83-page book downloadable PDF. Wow. 83 pages? 83 pages. Stories about our touring days and like 180 pictures it's absolutely amazing a little magic mushroom side trip man 
And now, back to the ice show with Sarah Karahara. No, oh, back to our show. And um, we went out, for, and she had chicken wings. I had uh, deep-fried mushrooms. So we got together that night, and we've been together ever since. And she is my soulmate. She's amazing. She choreographed all of Scott Hamilton's professional career, Ty and Randy. Uh, she choreographed Michelle Kwan. She choreographed numbers... Uh, for all of the ships that are out at sea, all the ships out at sea, uh, the 12 Royal Caribbean ships have ice rinks on them and they have ice shows. And she choreographed those. And uh, then she got an Emmy for Scott Hamilton TV special she choreographed, the first ice skater to ever get an Emmy. Wow. She choreographed the opening ceremonies of the Salt Lake City Olympics. You have to see the that. opening ceremonies of the Salt Lake City Olympics were incredible, staggering, and it was a three three year project um, with uh, Don Misher, and uh, it was brilliantly done. I thought, yep. and she received a second Emmy uh, for her work on that. So uh, she's got we got two Emmys in the house, and they're both hers. <laughs> <laughs> and then my my daughter Elise uh, has given me a beautiful uh, two and a half year old granddaughter and a grandchild it's her daughter it's my granddaughter. yeah then my other daughter Haley, uh she is a pop star a director a producer a uh, my gosh a videographer everything videographer right. amazing she is going to be directing a movie and uh it, it's a it's just amazing now she, for, for people like. who may not know uh, her career she was on csi csi uh, cyber well cyber. she started on a, a disney movie called lemonade mouth she played stella she appeared on wizards of waverly place and scooby-doo in scooby-doo right she played velma dinkley in two scooby-doo movies right for the cartoon network and and then she went on to see it which was her first adult role CSI Cyber with Ted Danson and Patricia Arquette yeah and she was the hacker didn't you once ask your kids what they all wanted to do I did I asked uh, my eldest daughter she said she wanted to be an art teacher I asked my son he said he wanted to design video games and I asked Haley and she said I'm gonna be a star dad Wow so it was just the semantics of it and how old was she she was probably six Six years old, she told you that. Yeah. Wow. Kids were always precocious with that. <laughs> sure. You know, I have three precocious children. And my son, Thatcher, is, uh, in fact, designing video games. He was yeah. also working with Haley on the road. He was. Right? Yeah. And, and uh, for those who have been following Haley her. Haley Kiyoko. Yeah, her, her career. She is known as the lesbian Jesus. She is. She's a queer woman, and she sings about queer love love yeah uh, she sings about what she knows she sings about what she feels and and makes extraordinary music videos extraordinary music videos that she's directed and brian grazer has taken note of it mm -hmm. over imagine and it's just it's wonderful the attention that she's gotten through her work and it's been she has worked very hard at it she yep. started writing music when she was 12 and i built a studio in the garage for her in our house because the neighbors would come up to me and say, and her drums was her first instrument. So they'd say, That's right. Boy, that Haley, she sure uh, practices a lot, doesn't she? She sure, she's uh, really, uh, I think she, I think she's getting better. <laughs> and this was somebody who lived like three blocks away. And I had people offering to buy her flute lessons. <laughs> So I finally built a soundproof studio there so she could just wail, wail away on the drums and write all the music she wanted to. And 
her theme is so timely as far as gender interests because I uh, took my daughter to her very first uh, arena rock show, which was Panic in the Disco. Yes. The opening act was Haley. That's right. And my daughter was so excited that she was the opening act. Oh, that's great. Because my daughter's 18. Yeah. And coming up through school, gender was the thing. It is the thing. It is the thing. I was just talking to her on the way over here. She's up at college now. And she said, I said, yeah, I'm going to go interview uh, Haley's dad. She said, please tell him that Haley is so cool. And thank and thank her for being so cool. That's great. It's inspiring that um, mothers and fathers have come up to Haley after the concert in tears, mm-hmm. thanking her for saving their daughter's life. Oh, uh, she has made being a queer teenager uh, acceptable, not acceptable, embraceable, a norm. <laughs> a, 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 she's a, it's a role model. She's She's a role role model for these girls and these girls that are going through so much pain and torture and Mm -hmm. even boys uh, over their sexuality. And look, uh, it really came home to me. Uh, I watched the Today Show. Maria Shriver was interviewing Haley on the Today Show. And it's a wonderful interview. It's only about a 12 minute interview, but apparently it went on for two hours. Wow. And in the 12 minute interview on the Today Show, Haley said, growing up, I felt like a monster. And to a parent, that just crushed me because you feel so responsible for your children's happiness when they're yes, growing of up. Course. And the, the fact that she felt like a monster and I didn't know and I couldn't help her. I didn't. Do, she was in love with her fourth grade teacher, she was, who was a really attractive woman. I was kind of hot for it, too. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. Hot for teacher. Wait, we, we had a thing. It wasn't <laughs> Anyway, she really hurt. She, well, she didn't hurt me. I hurt. I chose to hurt from that message that she was putting out and, and feel responsible for something that, again, out of my control, it's in the past. That's right. My daughter announced to me during high school that I was no longer allowed to address her friend by her female name because she had decided she's a he. Or them, and now when she's at uh, school, and you listen to any Zoom call, everything's prefaced. Even the professors are prefaced with "Hi, I'm Bob Smith, and I identify with him and his," which seems a little over the top. Mm-hmm. What would you say to somebody who is outraged by this and isn't sensitized to it? How do you explain that so that there's some empathy here? They were born that way, and they're not being the way they are to make you feel uncomfortable and make you feel out of place. They're just trying to live their lives as truthfully as possible. Yes. I think this pronoun thing that we're going through, it's, it's typical of any social evolution. Mm-hmm. And we really are going through an extreme social evolution right now when it comes to gender, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, division politics. Yes, we're so divided that uh, there's there's as little acceptance. But I think I think it's just a bump. I think that with social evolution, there's always an overreaction at first. There's always this not knowing how to deal with things that are changing mm-hmm. and feeling uncomfortable and feeling threatened mm-hmm. by that change. And I think it's just evolutionary. I think it's all gonna work out.
I think it's part of normal upbringing. You, you question for maybe even a nanosecond your sexuality when you're growing up and becoming sexual. I, I think you do. You go through that thought sure. process. Sure. They either realize they're gay or they're, or they're straight. straight. Right. Right? But this... Or they're bi. But this social media thing just amplifies that process. In your Facebook. Yeah. And that amplifies the outrage and the intolerance. But it brings it to... Our attention. Can you imagine if we'd have had social media in the Vietnam War? Yeah. It would have ended a lot well, sooner it than it did. Because the war was televised. Televised. People yeah. could palpably see it. Television brought it and home. And we to had us. Walter Cronkite, who chronicled it mm -hmm. with great honesty. Mm -hmm. The news on at that time was really something that people religiously would watch every night and on the various the, the three channels that we had mm -hmm. and they were always reporting the body count in vietnam and what was happening and that was one of the things that got us out onto the streets the only thing that changed was getting rid of the draft beat the reaper, beat the reaper. it didn't curtail war by any stretch no. uh, you originally uh, you're going to be a man of the cloth weren't you i was yeah yeah, I was going to be a Presbyterian minister because uh -huh. I was inspired by my minister at uh, Reverend John Holland in uh, mm. Morristown, New Jersey, at the Presbyterian Church on the Green there. Nice. He was really great. Fire and brimstone. He'd read out, he'd quote out a Playboy magazine and stuff. He was just so hip. And I thought, <laughs> wow, what a great, what a great, uh -huh. you know. Great platform. This is fun. I didn't realize I just wanted to be a stand-up comic. <laughs> I just wanted a microphone in a crowd. But you started in radio. I was the morning guy in uh, Key West. You are a silversmith? I was a silversmith in my 20s. Right. I learned from a, a master silversmith in Colorado and then went on to have stores in, in Key West. When were you in Key West? I was there 75 through 80. The wild days. Those were the halcyon days. Everybody just rode bicycles. We went to vegetarian feasts on the island every yep. night. Mm -hmm. Everybody hung out. You met some interesting awesome. people there, too. I met Tennessee Williams. I, I was that. directed by him no. in a production of Cabaret. What? I played Cliff Bradshaw. And he, he was the director. In Key West. Yeah, in Key West. You're going to be going back to Key West. I'm going back. Uh, to celebrate the third printing of a book that you edited. That's right. About stories about of Key West, which is wonderful. What's the name the of the book? It's called Home at the End of the World, compiled by Rita Troxell. Conchronicity, we called it at first. Because... <laughs> Back in the day in Key West, you know, Dee Dee made the clothes and we all wore these loose-fitting cotton Mexican shirts. Real and, community. And it was a real community. It was kind of funky. Sloppy Joe's Bar, there was Captain Tony's, never any cr big crowds to speak of. That's right. And then we came up with Fantasy Fest. There was a fellow on the island. Fantasy of, Fest. But Fantasy Fest is this Halloween festival coming up that they have in Key West, that it, the whole island goes crazy. <laughs> Tony Gregory spray paints naked bodies. People are <laughs> naked. The first Fantasy Fest I hosted, and I was yeah. Gene Simmons. Oh my God. It's amazing. And it is a huge gay community down there. And of course, they all really get into it. And uh, and I when I moved there, uh, I, uh, I came out as a practicing heterosexual and <laughs> as a... Uh, it wasn't easy, but I, I did it <laughs> for myself. Uh, I identified with her wow and gorgeous. Uh, and 
it, there were just so many beautiful women down there yeah and so few men yeah. to date them and not to be lascivious about it but that's that was a, a, a big attraction of the island back then free love yeah and free love it was it, there was lots of pot and people were doing acid and mushrooms and mm -hmm. and not that i did that then larry always said uh, the, the set and the setting are important and that was a great it's place a, a free island and yeah one day i'm in my store and i notice a fella at the counter across the way and i went up and as i came around i realized that it was the center square it was paul, paul Lynn. Lynn. and i he's looking at the case and I come around and I stand behind her and I said to him in his voice, can I help you? <laughs> and he said, I love that buckle. And in his voice back to him, I said, I call up my quick release. <laughs> and I pulled it out of the case and I showed him, I said, just push that turquoise in the middle and the buckle pops open. <laughs> and he bought it. It was like $300 or something. A big chunk of silver, big chunk of turquoise. And you pushed it. And buckle popped open. Perfect for Paul's lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> so then over the next three, four years, uh, he would just pop in. Whenever he got a new boyfriend, he's pop his head in the store and go, Jamie, need another buckle. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, quick release. He said, oh, you betcha. I'll pick it up tomorrow. <laughs> And we had, and and we just had a great relationship. He would bring his buddies. I started doing stand up. Boy, you're doing radio there as well. I was doing radio and I was hosting Bonnie Raitt concerts and uh, Jackson Brown, whoever came to town, Jimmy Buffett, whoever was there. So you're an MC, you know, MC the con. And I knew that I loved doing that. It yeah. was like Reverend uh, John Holland. Yeah, that was your pulpit, huh? Without the all the dogma, right? I got off the air one day and I had a note waiting for me. He said, you must be one of the funniest men in Key West. I'm the other one, Mac Dryden. And I went over to his address, didn't have a phone. I went over to his address, rode my bike over after work. And um, I, uh, I started a career by meeting with him. He just, we had similar goals. We had a similar sense of humor. However, we were markedly different people. He was from the South. He was a carnivore. He, he was a little, well, he was from the South. Yeah. Let's put it that way. A little way. bigoted. And uh, that's a good word. We used that mm -hmm. uh, in our act mm -hmm. because I was this Yankee, this Northern, snowy nose, soddy nose. Classic. Yeah. And he'd say, um, how do you say in the South, how's your family? I said, how's your mama name? So that's right. That's right. He used to give me a little quiz <laughs> and stuff like that. You know, I'm happier and a baby and a bear full of titties. Let me tell you, you know, and I, we'd, we'd use all that stuff. And we'd use the fact I was a pescatarian and he was a carnivore and, you know, all the differences in our life. But we both kept a great sense of humor about it. And we had a TV series in the 80s called yeah. Comedy Break with Mac and Jamie. Yeah. Did 125 shows. We launched Kevin Pollack on, on television. Who's been a guest on the show. Yes, he has. The first time on television, we put Ellen DeGeneres, Paul Reiser, uh, Rick Overton. Uh, we, you guys are also on the Carson Show. We did Johnny uh, twice and we did Jay once. 
that was a great thrill. I mean, standing behind that curtain, oh. hearing Johnny say your name. Wow. Nothing like it. No. Nothing like it. In those days, gave you quite a bump, right? Yeah, a big bump. Now, was that before you did your TV show? It was before we did our TV that series. That was your yeah. national introduction. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, this is interesting. Let me tell you a little showbiz story. Okay. Uh, we went into Toby, uh, who was uh, running Viacom at the time. Uh, we actually called them the Viacomese because they were the enemy of comedy, the Viacomese. <laughs> yeah, the Viacomese. <laughs> we went in and he said, well, guys, we, you've done two seasons with you. Uh, we did 50 shows and then we got renewed for 75. And he said, we'd like to do another 100, 125 shows. Whoa. And we said, great, fantastic. And Max said, we, but we need, we need at least two writers. Two new writers. Yeah. Who was on the staff then? So we had five writers and Mac and myself to okay. do six shows a week. Whoa. Whoa. Six half-hour original comedy sketch shows a week. And how did you shoot them? Did you shoot them three at a time or something like that? Shot them uh, five at a time. Five Wow. <laughs> the first 50 we did live on a Saturday morning. We shot five shows. We did it with Ruth Buzzy, Tom Poston. Two friends of mine. And we'd send them the scripts like a couple days before. They probably didn't look at them because <laughs> everything was on cue cards. Yeah. Yeah. Richard Mall knocked out Mac Richard on live Mall. television one day at the S&M Diner. <laughs> Good evening, sir. And welcome to the S&M Diner where the waiters smack your lips for you. Oh, my. Thank you. <laughs> a little something before dinner, sir? Uh, yes, I believe I will. Oh. Uh, would you like to see a menu, sir? Uh, uh, what are your specials? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Our specials today are just fabulous, sir. We have rack of lamb, <laughs> black and blue-eyed peas, <laughs> mashed potatoes <laughs> with whipped butter, crushed conch fricassee, <sighs> and of course, there's the vegetable of the day. What's that? Squash. <gasps> oh, it's exciting. Would you like to order your dessert now, sir? W well, what do you have? Ice cream. You do? <laughs> oh, I really? would for you. Yes, of course. <laughs> I bet. And would you like your nuts crushed? Sure. I bet. Ah! Oh! Ah! Oh! 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 I'll be right back with your order, oh, oh, sir. Thank you. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, Richard Mall from Night Court mm -hmm. actually has a reputation of uh, knocking people out. Oh, did he really? <laughs> In real life, yes. Oh, can any of these be seen on YouTube or anything? Some of them are on YouTube. I have them all, and I guess I should put them up on YouTube, but I just haven't taken the time to do it. Again, the name of the show, if someone's looking Comedy for Comedy Break. Comedy Break. With Mac and Jamie. So, the Hollywood story with Toby at Viacom. We go in with Toby, mm -hmm. and Toby's the boss. And he says, we want to renew it. And Mac said, we need two writers. And I said, well, okay, let's get two writers. He says, I can't give you two writers. I said, well... We can work something out, can't we? He said, no, I can't give it. I, I can't. This is it. This is a budget. It's going to be the way it was. You got five writers and you two guys. That's just the way it's going to be. Wow. And Max said, I can't do it. I can't do it again. I can't do it. And I looked at him. I said, what? You're not. Wait, well, wait a minute. We, we got another seat. Another 125 shots. What are you kidding me? He said, no, I won't do it. And he called Toby's bluff and got up and walked out of the office. And of course, being a comedy duo. I followed him. I wasn't going to stay there That's right. make excuses to Tony about Mac. So I just followed him out, and we walked out into the hallway. I said, what the hell did you just do? He said, don't worry. They'll, they'll come. I said, no, they won't. No, they won't. And we're standing there waiting for the elevator, and this salt-and-pepper-haired salt woman walks up to us, and she says, are you, are you Mac and Jamie? 
Yes, you are. You're Mac and Jamie. And I looked at her, and it was Carol Burnett. Oh, my God. And I said, Carol, oh, my God. How'd you know us? She said, are you kidding me? I love the show. Oh. I love your show. I love what you guys are doing. Skit comedy. It's sketch comedy. Sure. You guys, she said, guy, keep it up. And I said, well, you love the show. Talk to this guy, because he just quit. Wow. So we rode down in the elevator together, and we stood at the downstairs parking lot of that building and talked with her for about 45 minutes. Oh, my God. And she tried to sway Mac. And she didn't. Really? Yes. He really wanted to quit, I guess. He huh? really wanted to quit. Yeah. Speaking of hiring a couple writers, these two guys knocked on the door in my office. And I opened the door. And just said, Hi, we're here from Detroit, and we love your show. We just, I said, how'd you guys get on the lot? He said, and we just sneaked on the lot. He said, we're the Scully brothers, and, and we're from Detroit. And we, and, and we wrote some stuff, and, and we were wondering if you'd consider it for the show. I said, well, yeah, we're always, you know, looking for material. I know I'm always looking for material. Sure, my checkbook's always open. Yeah. Bill Maher used to say. I looked at the stuff. I said, listen, what? this looks pretty good. Why don't you come back tomorrow? We'll have lunch. Okay? I'll make sure you can get on the lot and you can get on legally. And we come back tomorrow and we'll have lunch. He said, great. So I'm, I'm reading this stuff and it's great. It's really, really funny. Mm. Mm. And I walk into our producer, Phil Hahn, and I say, Phil, look at this stuff. It's brilliant. It's great. I mean, Matt can play this role. I could do this one. You know, he's saying, you know, we can't do this. We can't hire anybody. Can't hire anybody. No way. Uh -uh. He said, it's not happening, Jamie. Just forget it. I said, well, they're coming for lunch tomorrow, and I got to tell them something. He said, tell them no. So they came for lunch the next day, and I decided to open my checkbook. Okay. I said, I will pay you $100 for every sketch, and what about... 20 for every joke. They said, 25? I said, sure. Mm -hmm. So I had a relationship with the Scully brothers now. They're living in their Delta 88, right? <laughs> so after about three or four weeks, I'm buying this material from them. I don't know how much I spent, but I'm spending money. Yeah. And I'm turning it in, and we're doing it. We're producing it. It's going on the air. Good. They're not getting credit for it. They don't get credit. But they got credit later yeah. because one of the brothers, Mike Scully, went on to be the producer of The Simpsons. <laughs> and the other brother went on to produce Family Guy, one of the best cartoons Huge. ever. So those were the Scully brothers from Detroit. And years later, Mike called me and put me on The Simpsons briefly for a few roles. He did what he could do. I filled in for Hank Azaria. Yeah. And then Hank heard me do him one of his voices and he got really pissed and had me fired so <laughs> so th those are the nice the connections you know when we, you've lived as long as we have we do have the privilege of friendship and we have the privilege of having friends still with us the continuity and of friendship i'll tell you man there's nothing better than friends thank you so much the amazing jamie alcroft what an absolute delight thank you it was a delight to be here ted and phil your sexy boomer adventure was truly wonderful. All right. See you next time. Okay. Bye. You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, featuring Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and their special guest, Jamie Alcroft. Music by Eddie Betos and the Nervous Brothers. To hear all the Sexy Boomer Shows, go to our website, sexyboomershow.com. And please, tell your friends about the Sexy Boomer Show. I'm a earnest guy. Stay tuned for the next episode of Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, produced by RadioPictures.com. 
the makers of fine podcasts for seasoned hipsters, man.